0: My father was an avid gardener, not in growing vegetables, but in landscaping, in planting flowers and bushes and trees. And unfortunately, I did not inherit that gift or that interest. But one of his favorite things to do was to keep his one acre land lush with the beauty of different flowering plants and bushes. I can remember on Saturday mornings him getting up early in the morning and going to the nursery and bringing back bags of potting soil and mulch and fertilizer and plaits of different plants and some bushes and he would spend the rest of the day mostly on his knees planting and feeding and watering. My mom and dad spent a lot of their hard work, their time, and their money over the years keeping their beautiful two-story New England home in Weston, Massachusetts, picture perfect. When my father died, my mom did not want to live in this big home by herself, and so she sold it, and she eventually moved down here to Peachtree City, and we were able to enjoy her company for a number of years, and she passed away a couple of years ago. My two sisters still live in Massachusetts, and one of them lives in the next town over from where my mom and dad used to live. She used to drive by their old home like once a week, but she doesn't do that anymore. It's too depressing, and the reason for that is it's now so dilapidated. It's hardly recognizable. You see, it became a rental property, and no one kept up with it. It's sad. Our world is like that. It takes great toil, great money, great effort to do just about anything to be productive and to prevent things from running down. Our text today speaks to why this is so in life. God originally created mankind to rule over His earthly creation without resistance. But that was lost when man fell into sin. But the great story of redemption is how God planned to restore what was lost through the coming of His Son, Jesus Christ, and His work. Well, we're in this sermon series out of the book of Hebrews called Pressing On, because of the supremacy of Christ, and the inspired author is addressing a mostly Jewish Christian audience, and they're experiencing growing pressure and persecution for their faith. They're being tempted to reject their faith in Christ as their God and Savior, and revert back to the Old Testament practices. Well, the author spent the first chapter laying the groundwork for the rest of this book. Showing us first that Jesus is the ultimate prophet. He is the creator God who took on human flesh. And one of the reasons is to reveal the Father to us. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He upholds all creation. And He came also to be our high priest. He came to purify us of our sins, to redeem us. And He also has come to be our ultimate King who sits enthroned in heaven. He is superior to the angels because He is the only begotten Son of God. And He will rule forever. And the angels worship Him and do His bidding and serve those who will inherit salvation. Well, last week, Pastor Tim preached on the first four verses of chapter two, which is kind of a parenthesis where the author draws a conclusion from what he has taught so far, and then he lays out the theme for the rest of the book. He warns people not to drift away from belief in Christ. He reminds them that God's judgment is coming But God's judgment has been satisfied through the cross for those who believe in Christ. And God has given a witness of this gospel throughout history. And believers will continue to be witnesses of this as they are filled with the Holy Spirit and as they use their gifts to serve the Lord. Well, now in today's text the author returns to this idea of the superiority of Jesus over the angels. He has stated how Jesus reigns in heaven over them and over all things. This ascension to reign came through the cross and the resurrection. And it's guaranteed the redeemed to be restored to their original position. So follow along with me as I read Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. This is the word of the Lord. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. Well, the first point we're to see from our text is, number one, dominion in the world to come is not to angels. In verse 5, the author begins this section with this statement. He says, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. In chapter 1, he has written of Jesus' reign in heaven, and how someday he will make all his enemies be his footstool. Jesus, of course, reigns now. He has all authority now. But we are in this age of the already, but not yet. This new world order has already begun. It's been inaugurated by Christ when he was ascended to the throne, but it's not been fully realized. And it won't be until He returns. Jesus is in control of all of history. He's reigning. He's in control of His new kingdom, His spiritual kingdom, and this new humanity that He is building. And yet at the same time, He has not visibly brought everything to worship Him. And therefore, the world is still in rebellion against Him, and subject to the old reality. But this is part of God's predetermined plan. While Jesus adds to His kingdom those He came to save, and refines the faith of those who are already saved. But He wants His readers to look forward to the time when Christ's reign will be consummated. He says when that time comes, It will not be to the angels that this world will be subject to, but to Jesus. But then he goes on to imply, by quoting Psalm 8, that Jesus will share this inheritance of his reign with his people, because he came to restore them to what they were originally created for. The writer says in verse 6, It has been testified somewhere. And then he quotes parts of Psalm 8. This is a psalm of David, and it depicts how God made man his highest creation to rule over the rest of his creation on earth. And the psalm begins as we read in our call to worship, or as Tim read, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth? You have set your glory above the heavens. And then in verse 3, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. He's showing us here that first, God's glory is above the heavens. But then he focuses upon the grandeur of the heavens themselves. And despite its greatness, David says in verse 4, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You see, man seems insignificant compared to the wonder, the vastness of the heavens, the planets, the moons, and the stars. And boy, have we ever been reminded of this recently with these high definition and high magnification photographs of the heavens that this new Telescope, the James Webb Space Telescope, has taken a space. It's absolutely mind-boggling how vast and how great the universe is. You know, just a few years ago, it was thought that there were, at the most, 200 billion galaxies in our universe. But because of the James Webb Telescope, now they say it's ten times that amount. Two trillion visible galaxies in our universe. And every galaxy has approximately 200 billion stars. Can you even get your mind around that? I can't. We don't know the end of space. But God is infinitely greater. And He created it all. And in comparison, man seems so small, so insignificant. But the psalm says God was mindful of him and cares for him. And then he continues to quote the psalm in verse 7 and 8. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. What's he talking about? This is a reference to the creation of man in the Garden of Eden. You know, you go back to the creation story and there's very little emphasis on God's creating of the trillions of galaxies and stars that He made. But there's an entire half chapter on the emphasis of the creation of man. Though man is so small in comparison to the huge universe that God has made, nevertheless, man, not the universe, is the crown of his creation. You you may remember the famous astrophysicist Carl Sagan. One of his famous phrases was, the cosmos is all there is, all there ever was, and all there will be. Implying that we are infinitesimally small. We're lost in this gigantic machine of the universe we're just this tiny little cog in a wheel but God's view of creation is radically different than Carl Sagan's Genesis 1:26 says then God said let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God made man in His image. He made him to reflect His glory, His character, and some of His attributes. And then He gave him dominion to rule over the earth and all other living things of the earth. Adam and Eve were God's viceroys creature, king, and queen with the responsibility of ordering creation under the lordship of God. Nothing was left that wasn't under subjection to Him and placed under His dominion. That's what we were created to be. And that is the inner drive and the innate desire that we have to work and to produce and to exercise dominion over the earth. But as wonderful and as astounding as that was, the second point of emphasis of our text, point number two, dominion lost by the first Adam through sin. Although He had been given everything on earth in subjection to Him, nothing outside of His control, the author states at the end of verse 8, at present, We do not see everything in subjection to Him. Well, what an understatement. The second and third chapters of Genesis tells us how things went wrong. God had given Adam, the representative of the human race, just one negative command. You are not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He was not to seek autonomy from God. Though he was Lord, little L, of the earth, he was to acknowledge his own subjection to the Lord, Big L, the Creator. But if he disobeyed, he would surely die. And you know the story. The serpent deceived Eve. She ate from the tree. Adam was right there. He allowed it to happen and then followed. And then he knew the good that he had forfeited and the evil that he had gained in rebelling against God. Adam did not become like God. No, but he became like the devil who he obeyed. And they saw happiness that they had fallen from. They saw misery that they had fallen into. And they saw a loving God provoked to wrath and judgment. His image tainted in them. And dominion over The creatures and living things diminished. They saw their natures corrupted, depraved. They became subject to God's curse, even death. Far from reigning over creation, each and every one of us instead will return to the dust from which we came. We are subject to the futility and the frustration of a creation that no longer cooperates. To Adam, he said in Genesis 3.17, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. And of course, to women also. He said they would have the pain of childbirth and the urge to usurp their husband's headship and husbands would have the urge to dominate over their wives. And along with this curse, Adam and Eve were thrown out of the garden and separated from intimate fellowship with God. Their sin brought them shame and judgment before God. And as mankind's representative Adam's sin infected all of mankind. We are all born with a sinful nature in this fallen condition, separated from God, under His judgment and wrath, under the futility of being unable to exercise dominion over the creation. This is the problem of our world. And it affects all of life and all of creation groans because of it. But the author of Hebrews here introduces an amazing interpretation of Psalm 8 in verse 9 of our text. He teaches that Psalm 8 is also a picture of, point 3, dominion regained by the second Adam through the cross. How was mankind going to be saved from this loss and this curse? The resources needed to recover paradise are beyond His reach. There's only one solution to this problem. It could not come from fallen humanity and creation, but from God Himself. On the one hand, there is man captured in this darkness, a slave to sin, but onto the stage, God sends His only Son. His deliverance would come By God assuming the position of humanity. By becoming the ideal man. The new man. The second Adam. Not tainted with a sinful human nature. He is the answer to man's problem. And to the problem of history. And so we read in verse 9. But we see him. Who for a little while. Was made lower than the angels. Namely. Jesus, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God Himself, became the ultimate Son of Man to come to this earth to take on our nature and our flesh, and yet without sin, being made a little lower than the angels. That refers to Jesus humbling Himself by taking on a human body subject to the weaknesses of the flesh, the capacity to suffer, from living in this fallen world and death. And this is the first time the writer of Hebrews uses Jesus' name. You recall, this was the name that was given by God to Mary and Joseph to name their baby. This name means Savior because He had come to save His people from their sins. And then the writer says in the second half of verse 9, this Jesus was crowned with glory and honor Because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. This passage speaks of the cross. How did Jesus come to save? How did He come to restore mankind from the curse? He did it through receiving the curse for us. He tasted death for us. That phrase means that He partook of it fully for us. He came to become a man in order to fulfill God's righteous requirements in His commandments in our place for us. So that we could receive His righteous record. But He also came to take on the record of our sins and our guilt and to receive the judgment of God on our behalf through His suffering through His bleeding, His death on the cross. And then He rose bodily from the grave on the third day, having victory over sin and the devil and death for us. And His bodily resurrection also proved that He was indeed the Anointed One and God's Son. And when He ascended back to heaven as the infinite God-man, with His dual nature, this work of salvation was an act of God's grace alone. And He tasted and experienced the curse of death and hell for us and for everyone that He came to save. And now, everything is in subjection to the infinite God-man, Jesus Christ. And as we noted before, at present, it doesn't seem like everything is in subjection to Him because we don't see it visibly. But He is sovereign. He is ruling over everything for our good and glory. And someday, when He returns, there will be the consummation of His kingdom rulership over everything. And all will be seen in subjection to Him. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And so, we've seen again the superiority of Jesus over the angels and that all things in the world to come will be subject to Jesus. And we've seen in Psalm 8 how God made man a little lower than the angels to have dominion on this earth, but this was ruined by the fall. And yet Jesus came to restore this by becoming the second Adam and receiving the curse for us through His death And he rose again, and he ascended back to heaven as the infinite God-man to rule on our behalf and to restore our purpose in ruling with him someday. Well, you might be thinking, well, that's fascinating, Pastor. So what? What difference does this make to the way that I ought to think and live in today's world? Well, let me give you three application points, three takeaways from these truths. First of all, we've understood that mankind was originally created to have fellowship with God uninterrupted and for glory and to rule as God intended on earth. And Jesus came to restore this for us. He came not only to provide Righteousness for us so that we could have right standing before God and forgiveness through his atoning sacrifice, but also so that we might someday rule with him over a new earth. That's a longing that we all have, which cannot be satisfied apart from Christ. We can only begin to experience this in a vital saving relationship with Jesus Christ. We can only begin to experience this by first trusting in Jesus and who He is and His life, death, and resurrection for our salvation. So my first question to you is, have you received the restoration Christ provides through His tasting of death for us? Do you belong to the age to come of glory and dominion, holiness and rule? See, in Christ. Man's glorious potential is realized. Christ's glorification is our foothold in glory. We've not yet been restored to what we will have in glory someday. But although we live in this fallen world and our dominion has been diminished and restricted, in Christ we are beginning to experience some of the dominion that we will have in heaven someday. Now, now we still chafe and struggle with the thorns and thistles of this life, but we also have glimpses of what we will be in the future. How? Well, when we become Christians, we become new creatures in Christ. We are new creations. And we have a new nature. We are no longer under the dominion of sin. Now, sin is under our dominion. We can say no to sin. We can say yes to righteousness. And we don't do this perfectly in this life. But we are now progressing as believers to become more and more like who we were created to be, like Christ. We can have some relative success in exercising dominion in our sphere of vocation and calling. We can begin to glorify God by having dominion in the areas of our influence. Yes, it will always be frustrating in this life and imperfect, but with God's help, we can be more and more productive for His glory. But this can only be if you have turned from your rebellion and sin and trusted in Christ and who He is and what He did for our salvation. Secondly, believer, when you experience futility and suffering in living in this fallen world in the now and yet not. Do you exercise your faith and hope in the promise to come? You see, this ought to change the way we look at life. Jesus is our pioneer. He's gone through all of this in advance for us. We cannot ultimately be pessimistic about life if Christ is indeed ruling And he promises that we are going to rule with him again someday. We should look forward to the future. This life is not where our fulfillment comes. But our expectation is that someday we are going to have an infinite amount of joy and fulfillment in reigning with Jesus in the future. We may feel that our experiences contradict this right now. They seem to be out of control, the world. We also experience what it seems like we are insignificant in this world, but that is just an illusion on the authority of God's Word. We are of infinite value to God. And if you're a believer, you are going to be crowned with glory and honor someday. You are going to inherit what Jesus has inherited, the reality is that God's children are objects of His astounding attention. God did all of this for us. He sent His Son so that we might reign with Him someday. He has in mind for you what no angel will ever attain to rule in a new world. No Roman emperor or any ruler in the ancient or modern world in all their glory could experience Even a fraction of the glorious reign and riches that will be ours in glory. And in a sense, this reign has already begun because in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, it says, We now, in a real sense, are already raised up with Christ and seated with Him in the heavenly realms. Jesus' reign will be fully realized someday in the age to come, and believers will share. In God's ultimate intention for us before the fall. We will be restored to our God-given dominion over a new world. And that's because we are in intimate union with Christ. We are so close to Christ that we will share with His dominion and His reign. Now, you might say, how can this be? I don't see this right now. Well, at present, we do not but as sure as Christ is reigning now in heaven, we will reign with Him. Thirdly, my final application point is this passage informs believers as to how we ought to view our suffering. Jesus' rule as God and man came through His humility and His suffering and death. And we too will enter into our glory and rule through a similar path. You see, the way to Christ's glory was through the cross. And we trust in His work alone for our salvation, but we must also experience suffering before we enter into our glory with Him. Not as a way to earn salvation, but as the way of preparation. The way of sanctification. God's way of our victory was through the humbling of his son unto death. You see, there's a connection between Jesus's suffering and our suffering, Jesus's glory and our glory. There is a purpose for all of our suffering. We must suffer and we must die to self. And so we ought to pray that when we suffer, God will give us this perspective to endure it with faith and the hope That we are being prepared for that glorious day when we will share in Christ's glory and rule on a new earth. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for these...